0: That's the Tavern Keeper's history. And so, Neophytes, we are done with Numas for the moment. It is now time to head northwest, following the course of the great Mortis River, up to the delta region of the coast, to the oldest city in Nehekara. Nay, perhaps even the oldest human city in the world—the fleet port of Zandri, birth to the arcane fleets of the Tomb Kings, both in ancient times and now. However, before proceeding, and if nobody minds, as we're about to touch upon the first stronghold of mankind, I do feel that this is the perfect opportunity to talk about the land of the tomb kings before the cities of Nehekara arose. For, the form that their society would take was decided long before the first human ever set foot upon the southlands ah no 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 i protest how dare you tell us about the history of this world before the rise of the empire it is an outrage (laughs) i think the knight doth protest too much ah yeah yeah damn you saw through it immediately Forgive my uh, drunken attempt at sarcasm. It is about as witty as I can manage, as my wits have temporarily left me for a booze-kindled snooze. Ha ha ha! Oh no, I think you still have at least some of your wits about you. But jesting aside, I have certainly known men of that type. Make the empire great again they'd cry and get up in your face if you even hinted that the Empire was anything but the be-all and end-all of realms in the entire history of the world. You'd see so the uh, demagogues on either side, the zealots of both Sigmar and Ulrich in equal measure, rubbed their hands with glee upon seeing such a mob of men. For fodder such as these, are but putty in the hands of that kind of manipulative firebrand, and they could be tricked and riled up to do just about anything the preacher wanted, from storming a seat of government to lynching a poor old lady. I've even seen bands of them whipping themselves stupid until the blood poured in rivulets from their exposed flesh as they headed into battle. Insanity. No wonder the Empire is stricken by the uh, internal strife of religious war right now. Anyway, I'd best press on before my hackles get riled up any further. Ah, yeah, yeah. I do think that is best. I have a feeling that you uh, do not anger easily, so I would uh, want to avoid that if at all possible. (laughs) I don't think I could comment on that. I think it is best we head back into the past. Well, according to the ancient myths and legends of Nehekara that I have been privy to, in the time before the arrival of men, the desert gods walked the world as mortals do now. At that time, the land was the domain of demons and other foul, never-born creatures that had escaped from the realm of the Dark Gods to bring death and misery upon the living. The gods did not shrink from the endless foe, though. Rather, they fought the armies of demons in great battles that lasted for centuries. The sun god Petra, in his war aspect as the Dawnbringer, led the Nehekaran pantheon against the minions of the Dark Gods from atop a golden chariot. And, eventually fought the darkness back with even the most powerful greater demons of the chaos gods recoiling from his divine light to flee back to the gaping rift in the northern wastes with victory secured and the lands cleansed the desert gods then transformed it into a verdant and bountiful realm centered on the flat fertile plain that spreads out from the great river vitai Now known as the uh, mortis, which sometimes, just to make you aware, young neophytes, you may also see translated as mortish, depending on the age of the source text. That is, here the pantheon ruled for countless years until the arrival of the race of man, of which we shall speak more of when we discuss the great catastrophe, an event that occurred some seven thousand years ago. Now, excuse me, the what? (laughs) <laughs> we are already on a tangent, off a tangent, off a tangent. That is definitely something for another time. Don't worry, I will explain it all. Just not this night. Anyway, according to the inscriptions found carved onto the tombs and monuments of the ancient cities of the Southlands, it is written that Petra saw such potential in the newly emergent race of man that he took it upon himself. To bestow upon them The fertile land He had created The land that they would come to call Nehekara Ah, yeah, yeah If you'll excuse yet another interjection But uh, where did this name come from? Is that known? Ah, no, no Please feel free to ask Whatever, whenever But to answer your question Yes We believe that a man Nehek was the first king of the people of that region, before the building of the first city. And it is from his name that the land became known as Nehekara. Nehekara. In the time of Nehek, the people were still nomadic, hunting, gathering and raiding as they migrated across the land. During my time amongst the Tuareg, I also learnt that the word Kara means beautiful. In the language of the desert tribes, although it is commonly assumed by scholars that Hara means great land. Although it would not surprise me if it was a mixture of the two, such as the innate complexity of the ancient tongues of the Southlands. Ah, yeah, yeah, I see. You certainly know your stuff, Master Tavernkeeper. Well, the ancient stories of Nehekara were a passion of mine. For many a year. Let us continue though. At this point, a covenant was made between the gods and the people of Nehek, and in exchange for their worship, Petrar offered to watch over and protect those that dwelt in their lands. Remember this when we come to discuss the rebellion against the rule of the usurper Nagash, for it is of utmost relevance. With the covenant made, the gods nurtured their worshippers teaching them the arts of farming by means of irrigation, how to read and write in hieroglyphics, and how to build cities. And from this, the people blossomed into a powerful and vigorous civilization through the construction of vast roads and fleets of ships to connect each city to its neighbour. However, these were no halcyon days, as each city became a rival unto the others, each, raising and training vast armies and warring against the others, even as they fought against the greenskin, barbarian and lizardmen. In this bitter crucible, two powerful city-states came to the fore to dominate the plains of Neakara. Both were wealthy and strong, both had an abundance of manpower and agricultural produce, and both had. Formidable trading networks via the Great River. The first of these two kingdoms was Zandri, located in the delta formed by the Great River itself. And the second, which may come as no surprise, was Numas, located upstream within sight of the mountains. Again, you may sometimes see it written as Numash neophytes, depending on the age of the text, just so you're aware. Anyway, as we have already mentioned, each of these cities was extremely militaristic, with each city raising strong armies from amongst their subjects and placing them directly under the absolute rule of their king, around whom buzzed a court of nobles and the higher echelons of the priesthood, the interpreters of the will of the gods. But it was the corrupting influence of this absolute power at the top that began to destabilize the realm of Nehekara, for it caused the kings to thirst for ever greater power, with the kings of Zandri and Numas enviously eyeing the possessions of the other, making war inevitable. Rulership of the great land thus passed from king to conquering king, as dozens of monarchs rose and fell during the internecine fighting but with none having the strength to both prevail and then hold on to the crown of nehekara for long the infighting within nehekara led to them leaving themselves open to being conquered from without the city of libaras was all but destroyed by the lizardmen from the southern jungles the greenskins and the northern barbarians laid waste to the lands around Xandria Numas and the touch of the plague god blighted all with drought and disease bringing the first great civilization of man to the precipice of collapse after which the survivors would surely perish but at this point arose Cetra the Great to unify the land, its people, and their gods. Oh, but I have gone on a little further than I intended. Let us leave the tale of the great king for another time, and return to the first city, Zandri. The guide who I met upon the shores of the great river Mortis, Sully. Ah, I mean, the vampire. Sully had this to say about Zandri.
1: To the north lie the ruins of Zandri. Here the great ocean meets the desert, and at the mouth of the river Mortis lies this ancient port. Once the great and noble king Amenemhatum ruled over the city. During his reign, he built a vast fleet and sailed the oceans, conquering the lands across the seas in the name of Ualatep, the vulture god. His kingdom extended deep into the lands to the north, and under his rule, Zandri became a fabulous and wealthy place. Now, the city is all but destroyed and the streets are quiet. The seas around Zandri are a different matter though. When the Dark One woke the Two Kings, they waged war on each other. In death, As he had in life, Amenemahetem was content to be ruler of the oceans. I have seen the king's ships sail the coast with my very own eyes. Ancient vessels, but still as glorious as they were when the king still lived. Even in death, it is said, he continues to raid the world, his ships ceaselessly sailing the seas, rowed by skeleton slaves, doomed to an eternity at the oars. No coast is safe, and even the most experienced captains know to stay clear when they sight his fleet. The coast around the mortis delta is filled with the sunken wrecks of pirate ships that have foolishly attacked his fleet in search of treasure.
0: And so, this is Zandri, as it is today in 1563. Obviously, being so long ago, the early history is somewhat piecemeal. But some of the known facts are these. As I mentioned, we believe Zandri to be the first city, and it was built by someone called King Zakash. This was an indeterminate time after the reign of Nehek, and the early Nehekarans had already forsaken their nomadic ways, settled, and begun to practice agriculture. During the reign of Zakash, it is said that the gift of hieroglyphics and writing was received from the gods, and with this, the first flowering of their civilization began. Prior to this, all we know of the time of wandering comes from ancient songs and folk stories, passed down through the generations, some still sung by the desert tribes even today. Many of the records of the history of Zandri between the time of Zakash and the rise of Setra Appeared to have been lost in the fires of the wars between the kingdoms. But, after being conquered by Setra, it had a long period of stability during his reign. However, following the death of Setra, the city rebelled under the reign of his successor, his son, Ataf I, and gained their independence once more. As far as I can tell from the sources they were able to remain as an autonomous city throughout the rest of the First and Second Dynasties until the reign of Nagash's father, King Ketep, who conquered all of Nehekara up to and including Zandri. Although he did not depose their proud ruler, the priest-king Nekumet, this may have been a mistake. This period again appears to be one of stability. And trade flourished like never before, and his people prospered. However, the attainment of wealth does not oft beget satisfaction and happiness. No. Instead, it more often than not simply creates a desire to hold tight onto what has already been gained, and instills in men the want for more. To put it simply, it begets greed. A trade dispute broke out between the capital Khemri and its wealthy nobles and the royal household of Zandri. A slight thing, but one that spiralled into conflict between the armies of both cities and, in the clash, Nekumet. slew Ketep. Following this upheaval, Zandri once more fell into line with greater autonomy to oversee its own trading practices and a much reduced tax burden if they would but acknowledge Thutep as the new ruler of all of nehakara This seems to have taken place and so this was the state of things when both Thutep, Ketep's youngest son and later Nagash, his eldest, ruled in Kemri. Now It was not just in trade that the fleet port excelled their armies too were renowned the prideful monarchs of zandri were exceptionally belligerent as a result of centuries of fighting against invaders simply to survive and this cultivated a strong vein of zealous indignation in the warrior caste of the city aimed towards any who would dare to invade and defile their lands. War leaders of note include King Behadesh, the inventor of the arcane skull catapult, and his successor, Behadesh II, a master tactician of desert warfare and zealous follower of the patron god of the city, Walateb, the vulture god whom we mentioned earlier when we talked about the gods of the tomb kings. Another was the stubborn prince Anirakotrak, the defender. Yet another was King the IV, known as the subjugator, although called by some the thief. He ruled for around two centuries following Zandesh III, Memnish, Subdued many of the tribes in the lands around his kingdom And in his reign, the city flourished Ah, so why was he also known as the Sif Ah, well, as he approached the end of his life He was determined to make his own tomb The most beautiful pyramid that had ever stood And took a good number of obelisks from his predecessor's tomb Replacing the hieroglyphics inscribed upon them with his own and even building over the site of some of the older monuments commissioned by Zandesh. Ah, yeah, yeah, that would do it. Ah, indeed. But most infamous amongst these warlords of Zandri was the king, Amenhotep, also known as the Intolerant, the high-handed avenger of Zandri, whose spite and unforgiving nature Terrified, even his fellow countrymen. These leaders led a very robust army down through the centuries whose forces were at once typical and yet also unique in Nehekaran history. Zandri, like Numas, was well known for its deadly units of archers who played a pivotal role in many battles both before and during the rebellion. But, the two units that were the most well-known in their day were the Eternals and the Black Shields. Like the Tomb Guard of Qatar and the Scarab Legion, later known as the Sphinx Legion of New Mass, Zandri II, at its heart, had an elite formation of veteran warriors known as the Zandri Eternals, whose primary role was as a royal bodyguard. Of note, it was this unit that were directly involved in getting their king, Nekomet, into combat with Nagash's father, Ketep, and they ensured his subsequent defeat at the hands of their king. It was said that they bore a magical banner, a relic of the ancient city called the Standard of the Undying Legion, and bound within its core were the spirits of long-fallen warriors, ready to fulfil an undying pledge to aid the great kings of Xandri in times of dire need. This story seems to predate the rise of the undead in Nehekara, so is a very intriguing piece of trivia. The black shields, on the other hand, were the backbone of the army of Zandri, and it is said that the city maintained at least ten full regiments, irrespective of whether the city was at war or peace. If you recall from our discussion of the army of Ramhotep, ancient Nehekaran regiments tended to consist of between 250 and 300 men. So, we are looking at between 2,500 to 3,000 professional soldiers on permanent standby at any time. It is little wonder the city was such a difficult enemy to defeat. And indeed, after the fall of Nagash, Zandri was only conquered three more times. Once by King al the II during the early part of the Sixth Dynasty. Then by al the conqueror, the last living king of Khemri. At the end of that dynasty and finally during the second rising of setra the black shields though saw action throughout the history of nehikara but of particular note were the pivotal roles they played in the defeat of lamia and the toppling of nagash himself however no discussion of zandri would be complete without mention of her navy, for this is where the city's real military strength lay. Zandri had always had a harbour since the founding of the city. However, what began as a series of haphazard keys for mooring fishing boats slowly grew and expanded into a vast, complex fleet port. Here could be found ships and barges manned by rows upon rows of slaves who bent their backs at the oars to the resonant beat of the vessel's drums and the stinging bite of their taskmaster's whips. However, it was not until one of Sandri's greatest rulers, King Amanimhetum the Great, that the vast fleet of warships, which became synonymous with the city, was created he and his armada of warbarks including the infamous curse of zandri later the flagship of king amenhotep cut through the waters around the old world raiding pillaging and conquering as they went his domain extended deep into tylia here and zandri grew in beauty and wealth as plunder and slaves poured into her economy. Gardner, in his lecture to us all those years ago, read for us this inscription that he had found upon an artefact from the tomb of the king in Zandri. And he did smite and destroy his enemies with great vengeance and furious anger. And speaking of artefacts... It was also the priests of Amenemhetum that created the infamous Standard of the Sands. A magical banner that, the desert nomads told me, summons a raging storm of sand to sweep over the battlefield to assault their enemies with a screaming wind and biting sand. The desert tribes have suffered greatly at the hands of the armies of Zandri that have borne this standard. But back to the wealth of Zandri, for this too is one of the first things that many will think of when they hear the name of the city, even today. Amenemhetem may have been one of the city's most successful maritime leaders, but for its most wealthy, we need to go back to King Amenhotep, the Mad Miser as he was referred to in some of the uh, papyri of Numas. It was he that possessed such treasures as the great blade of Carpesh, plundered from Qatar, and the gigantic sapphire, the fabled jewel of the river Vitai, later known as the jewel of the river Mortis, an heirloom of the sun god Petra himself, It is said that by channelling the energy of the sun, the gemstone could direct a great beam of burning light at the foes of the city. There, that is enough on Dusty Zandry for the moment, I think. Next, we shall... Heinrich, something seems to have caught your attention. Ah, yeah, it is morning. By the gods, so it is. And our tale telling is far from over. Yeah, yeah. And you will need your sleep if you are to head into the sewers tonight to try and break into the Palazzo del Vonto. Yeah, our intrepid leader, Sven Hammerhelm, said that we were to set off promptly at sunset on the 14th. The 14th? But with the coming of dawn, today is only the 13th. What? You bloody fool, Heinrich. You're not leaving tonight. You're leaving tomorrow night. Ah, yeah. So I am. (laughs) Well, in that case, let us all get to bed and reconvene again to continue our discussion tonight. Neophytes, the entire second floor of rooms is unoccupied. Each of you find a room and get some rest. I'll be up mid-afternoon as I've... uh some Blood Bowl miniatures to paint whilst the sun is still up. But, please, feel free to come join me as soon as it gets to the evening. Uh, Ah, I've a game tomorrow afternoon with my regular opponent. Old Sparrow, you see. Blood Bowl? That sounds intriguing. What is that? Oh, really? You're interested? Ah, neophytes. You don't have to stay for this. Please, please. Go get some well-earned rest. But, Heinrich, if you are sure, then please spare me a few moments before bed, and I will tell you about this wonderful little board game made by the artisans of the Workshop of Games over in Lower Altezza.